0: You know when you open up a pages document or, or a word, a Microsoft Word document on your computer, and it's sitting there blank. And up there, in the top left of the screen, there's just a small line that's blinking. It's just blinking. Something is soon to be written. John the Baptist is that. He's that cursor blinking on the screen. A word is coming. Or maybe you're single and you have an iPhone and uh, you send a text message to someone that you have a crush on. You know, hey, I had so much fun yesterday. How's your day going? And nothing, nothing, nothing. The next day, a bubble appears, a gray bubble, with three dots. Something is being written. Something is coming. That is John the Baptist. He's a sign that something is coming, but he's not the word. He precedes it. He's the last of Israel's prophets, and the first... To recognize Jesus. Right, the story goes that in utero, in Elizabeth's belly, he leaps for joy when Mary comes to visit with Jesus in her belly. He straddles the old and the new. He prepares the way for Jesus. The image is like someone with a machete In the thick rainforest, just chopping down, preparing a way. Or in something that would be much more familiar to us, it's the image of a snowplow after a thick, dense snowfall, preparing the way, clearing out that which is hindering us. In our text today, John is the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And when John is born, Zechariah, his father, bursts into prophetic song. The lyrics are recorded in the Gospel of Luke, which we didn't read this morning, but in chapter 1, verse 6, Chapter 1, verse 76 through 79. It's a very long chapter. He says, "...and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's what John does. John prepares a way, a path of peace, by making space. John is a pretty big deal. Um, In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus himself says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Those are big words. John is one who clears space for Jesus to come fill. What I wonder when I read about John the Baptist is, what forms someone into this kind of person? What experiences, practices, habits, relationships did John have that molded him into this man of God who could make the way, who could clear space for God to come? Well, like every life that is formed well, his story begins with his parents, begins with his parents. He is a child of silence and barrenness. He's a son of silence. Last week, we explored how his father, Zechariah, was silenced by the angel Gabriel in the temple. And we learn later on that Zechariah was kept silent for the whole pregnancy of John until he was born. So 10 months And we asked the question last week, what if Zechariah's silence wasn't just punishment or entirely punishment for his doubt, but also a bit of blessing? What if it was an opportunity for Zechariah to dwell richly on God's promises? A time of internal solitude to receive the miracle of new life. And there's obviously things about silence, we all know, right? Every new word that's spoken is always spoken into silence. Uh, Unless you are someone who talks and there's literally no space between your words. In which case, it's hard to understand a word being spoken. And we all know if we really want to hear something, we need to stop talking. We have to listen. And the thing is, though, when we actually clear our lives... Of distraction and noise, and pause to sit in that silent space, many surprising and unavoidable feelings and thoughts can sort of surface in our minds and hearts, often uncomfortable ones. And it's there that we begin to hear more of our true selves, but more importantly, we begin to hear more of God what God might be trying to speak into our lives. Anuma Okoro, who I'll quote a few times, she says, Silence forces us to name our sources of meaning, value, and identity. It creates room for our buried desires, fears, and other emotions to be heard. Once these emotions surface we can begin the hard work of attending to them and moving towards spiritual, emotional, and mental health. It's no wonder, she says, that we do not run more quickly and enthusiastically towards silent retreats or incorporating spaces of silence into our daily spiritual practices because stuff comes up in those moments that we'd rather keep down. But, she says, the more we inhabit silence the better our hearing becomes. When we step back into the noise of the world from the silence, our hearing is a bit more fine-tuned and more likely to catch God's whispers. I have no doubt that the experience of prolonged silence was transformative for Zechariah. And I believe that it actually influenced deeply his ability to parent and father John in a more faithful way. Uh, Instead of sort of molding and making John into the son he needed him to be, he was able to release John to God to become the prophet God had called him to be. It left space for God to shape John because Zechariah knew he didn't have to do all of it. Last week in our service, we sat in silence for five minutes, for five whole minutes. And, and I wonder, and you can tell me some other time, like, how, how was that for you? Um, how was that for you? And I wonder, because my ask to you was to create space throughout the week to, as our series is called, prepare him room, to make space for God in quieter, if not completely silent moments. One congregant told me this week that he felt challenged to create some space for the Holy Spirit to move. So he created space in the car one morning, and he's trying to do that in the car as he drops his kids off for school. And he didn't really know, you know, what to do in that, but he sensed the Holy Spirit, quote, telling him to just see God as his papa, rest his head in his lap, and weep. So that's what he did, sitting in his car, in a very ordinary moment. He had an encounter with God. And I was so blessed and encouraged that he shared that with me. On the elders' retreat, a couple Uh, months back now, we had two 90-minute times of solitude. And after the second time in particular, we all gathered together for lunch, and it was really (laughs) encouraging to me and beautiful to see the way that God met with each person individually and uniquely to them, but in a way that when we all sat and talked, there were similarities. God was speaking to us so that we could discern a bit of the future of our church together. Uh, Personally, this week my mom has been uh, in the hospital, and it's stressful and scary and frustrating, and visiting her is time-consuming, and when life is busy, which it has been, it's really hard to allow myself to feel or process any of it or to truly take the situation to God in prayer. I mean, I'll I'll say a prayer, right, as I'm walking or in the car or briefly, and I think God honors those, but to to truly hand it over to God in prayer. It wasn't until Thursday when I actually listened to the reminder on my phone, which goes off every day, but I actually listened to it at 3.30 to stop and pause For five minutes. And during a simple guided prayer meditation, I could finally give the situation to God. And I sat at my desk and I cried and I felt the loving arms of God begin to embrace me. And it's not that I'm done with the situation, don't have to think about it anymore and it's done, but it was a moment. Those five minutes became a simple container, a small inner room of my heart where God and I could meet. And if God can do that in a simple five minutes, I have to wonder what occurred in Zechariah's life in ten months. John, who we're talking about, that cursor, that precursor, John is the son of silence. The one who prepares the way for Jesus is the son of silence. And he's also born of barrenness. His mother, Elizabeth, is called barren. And I think we need to sit with that word for a minute. I'm grateful again to Enuma Okoro, who offers us a meditation on that word. Um, saying it much better than I could. She says this. It's a cold word, hollow-sounding, devoid of warmth, almost ironclad in its finality, barren. Elizabeth is a barren woman. Could anything be more devastating in a culture that prides women on the fruits of their womb? Imagine her wondering what Zechariah might secretly think of her who can bear him no heir. What must God think of her? Elizabeth is known for her devoutness, yet she is barren, apparently forgotten by God. Perhaps she is, as her society claimed, held in God's disfavor on some level. All her long married life, she carries this curse, this disgrace, this burden. Elizabeth is barren. Elizabeth carries the ache of her barrenness for most of her life. She's denied the essence of what it meant to be a woman in in her historical time and place. What might she have been like? How did her unmet desires affect all aspects of her life? How many of us with unmet longing can relate to her? Elizabeth's barrenness is a testimony to the embodied nature of our spiritual lives. We worship and pray with all of who we are. Are at times unyielding flesh and spirits. Every time Elizabeth prayed, she did so in no other body but hers, her barren body. She prayed with that which she yearned for God to bless and touch. Barrenness does not simply mean that a woman cannot have children, infertility can be fraught with all kinds of unmentioned trials and varying levels of pain. And rarely is it clean. It's messy. Enduring a miscarriage is a her- horrifying experience of encountering lifeblood seeping from your body. Not to mention the emotional trauma of infertility, the self-inflicted guilt, feelings of failure, the possible onslaught of depression. Only after we acknowledge the physical reality of barrenness can we begin to consider how such pain can transfer to other forms of barrenness. Then we can adequately name other empty spaces in our lives that feel as painful as the ache of a womb that refuses to carry life, the purpose for its creation. So that's a long quote that Okoro gives us but her words are better than mine. The very real place of barrenness in Elizabeth becomes the same place that John's life begins. John's own birth tells him that life can come from barren places. So this is intimately connected to who he is as a person. He knows he's born from the place that they were told nothing could be born. And the Bible has a name for the barren places in our lives. The wilderness. Sometimes the desert is what it says. So it makes perfect sense when in our text, Mark 1.4 says that John appeared in the wilderness. Those are the first words Mark tells us about John. He appeared in the wilderness. And he doesn't just show up in the wilderness, but he too embodies it in his diet and in his fashion choices. Right, He eats wild locusts and honey. He wears clothing made of camel's hair. Just a belt around his waist. You know, John is someone who took the Nazarite vow. Which would mean that his hair was probably super long. Because you don't cut your hair. And you fast quite often. So you've got to imagine this skinny guy eating the locusts and wild honey, long hair, camel's hair around him. His ministry and his body was the wilderness. And we learned about Zechariah last week that Zechariah comes from a priestly lineage. So John had every right to do his ministry in the temple, in the homes of Jewish celebrities, in the public square in town, But his ministry was done out there in the wilderness. People had to come to him if they wanted to hear his message. His spiritual formation was in the wilderness. And coming from a barren womb, he knew what it was like to find God in barren places. And he is the embodiment of the prophecy that was read today from Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John is clearing space in the wilderness and the desert. And people from all over Judea and Jerusalem, they went out to him. They knew to encounter the God he was talking about, they had to get up and go to the barren places. As Americans, we live in a culture that is the opposite of barren for most of us. It's excessive. And I don't know about you, but I've been conditioned to think that more is always better. More is better extravagance is fulfilling john offers the possibility that seasons and spaces of austerity can redirect our focus to the things of god if we choose to take advantage of such opportunities so i wonder if you were to scan your life where is the wilderness in your life right now, the barrenness, the sort of imposed stillness where you wish there was words, but it's quiet, and then sit and wonder, what is God trying to offer me here? What can this offer me that nothing else can And you'll have to be intentional with that, because oftentimes when we're in wilderness seasons, it can feel like it's too much to bear, and so we grip and grab for anything that can fill that space. We need to cope with it, and so we quickly fill the space with anything that we can. If you're like me, you might turn to leisure and amusement, fill the absence with Facebook, TikTok, Instagram... Amazon Prime, Hulu, whatever show that I can binge. Netflix and chill. But the chill doesn't last past the end of the show. All that I did, or all that we might do in those moments, is fill the absence that John encourages us to create. But not with substance. And look, I get it, the wilderness can feel like too much. Sometimes we just want some peace, especially during the holidays. So we've made all these ways during this time of the year to overindulge and numb ourselves. The peace that comes from a bottle of wine ends with the pain of a headache in the morning, if not much worse. The peace that comes from overindulging in Christmas desserts, this one I'm more familiar with, ends with a stomachache and lethargy tomorrow and jeans that don't fit a week later. The peace that comes from a new pair of jeans or shoes or earrings fades into guilt and boredom and a crowded closet of things we don't really even like. The peace that comes from muting all the chaos in the world, right? The cries of people of color, the cries of minorities in our communities, just, it's too much, just, it ends with injustice, with protests, with violence. It's the barren places where a path is paved to new life. It's the places of emptiness that leave room for God to fill them. And trust me, What God will fill them with is always better. Silence and wilderness, they formed John to become the kind of person who could sincerely and effectively point to Jesus. People flocked to him. They went to the uncomfortable place of the desert to hear this crazy guy tell them what? Repent! You got two cloaks? Sell one of them. You got a lot of food? Give it away. Can you imagine yourself traveling miles by foot to hear someone tell you to give away your extra clothes? There was something about him that was compelling, that was different. People wanted to hear what he had to say. St. Seraphim poignantly says this. He says, Acquire interior peace and a multitude of men will find their salvation near you. Acquire interior peace and a multitude of men will find their salvation near you. Not from you, right? It comes from God. But John had this interior life formed by the desert By silence. And people found their salvation near him. Because he pointed to Jesus. John becomes a person acquainted with his inadequacy. Without being beholden to inaction. Let me say that again. John becomes a person acquainted with his inadequacy. Without becoming beholden to inaction. Inadequacy doesn't mean inaction. Here's here's what I mean. This is the posture of John. He's one who prepares the way, and this is meant to be our posture in Advent. Inadequacy, not inaction. In the third chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist is talking to his disciples, and one of them is upset because Jesus is getting more people to show up at his baptisms now than John is. Now, that's a problem when your name is John the Baptist, right? If you're Steve the Shoemaker, and everyone starts going to a different shoemaker, that's going to cut out your identity a little bit, right? And so John's disciples come to him, and they say, do you know this is going on? Aren't you upset about this, John? And he says... He says, "You know what? I'm like a groomsman. And I'm really happy when the groom gets married. When the groom shows up. I'm happy with that the groom is standing center stage, not me. I'm the groomsman." And then John says that now that Jesus' ministry has begun, now that he's got more people going to him for baptism, John's joy is actually complete. In fact, he says, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. To actually say and mean that sort of thing, it requires a certain work being done to your soul beforehand. The ego doesn't easily let go of the identities we've made for ourselves. You know, there's two solstices each year. Okay, there's the longest day, summer solstice, the most hours of sunlight, don't we wish it was then now? And then there's uh, the shortest day, winter solstice, the most amount of darkness, the shortest amount of the sun. And the summer solstice is towards the end of June, and get this, the Christian church has traditionally put the feast of St. John the Baptist on the summer solstice. The longest day of the year. Winter solstice, as you know, is actually pretty close to Christmas Eve. Pretty close to Christmas Day. And the church has decided Christmas, obviously, that's when we celebrate the feast of Jesus' birth, is on the shortest day. But if you're like me at all, I'm like, this seems a little bit backwards. Um, Shouldn't Jesus get the long day? Shouldn't Jesus get all the sunlight and joy and warmth? He must increase, but I must decrease, says John. See, the church brilliantly chose summer solstice as John's feast day because every day after it, there's less and less and less sunlight. On jo- after John's feast day, the sun decreases. And Christmas is beautifully Jesus' feast day because... Every day after it, what? More and more light. Hope grows. So now, the whole cosmos bears witness to the growing light of Christ. To the decrease of John and the increase of Jesus. John must decrease so Jesus can increase. If you spend time in silence and solitude, if you embrace the wilderness moments of your life, if you turn away from all the distractions that numb and offer false peace, then you will inevitably become acquainted with your inadequacy. All the places that you are not enough will start rising to the surface in those moments of silence and wilderness. And as painful as this is, it's ultimately a good thing. John is well acquainted, as we've said, with his inadequacy. And the New Testament scholar uh, at Wheaton, his name's Esau McCulley, he says, John the Baptist's ministry is simply this, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. Stop talking, Dad, is what my son just said. Wow. I'm a little, little long-winded. Okay, Janice said I can keep talking, so it's at least one-to-one there. <laughs> oh, buddy. Esau McCauley, I am not the Messiah. That's John's ministry. John knew deeply in his soul, at the very basis of his being, he didn't need to be the Messiah. That job is already taken. His job wasn't to be the Messiah, but to point people to the Messiah. There's a lot we can take on from this. John knows he is not the hope of the world. He recognizes and embraces his own inadequacy, his own insufficiency. Again, this goes back to his birth story. His very existence required the miraculous inbreaking of God. And so he knows I am not enough. But inadequacy doesn't mean inaction. So there's another uh, amazing and also tragic story about John. It's in Matthew 14. We're told that John was arrested by King Herod and put in prison. Uh, See, Herod wanted to marry Herodias, which was his brother's wife, and John was speaking truth to power. And he told Herod that this is wrong. This is unlawful. And so Herod has him arrested. And eventually there's this really tragic, messed up story where Herod has him beheaded. And then Herodias' daughter takes John the Baptist's head on a platter and walks it to her mother, Herodias. Herodias. And so John's disciples have to bury a a headless corpse. And that's the end of John's ministry. Now, he knew he was inadequate. So he could have said, I'm inadequate, I'm insufficient, I'm not saying anything to Herod. Jesus is the Messiah, he can do it. Um, I'm going back to the desert, I'm really craving some locusts. But when we're grounded in God, our inadequacy doesn't make us run away from the world and its problems. It actually propels us toward the dangerous and broken places of the world, but with a different posture. John was able to speak truth even with the possibility of death because he knew the Savior had come. Death would not be the final word. His inadequacy allowed him to move forward in action. This is good news for us as the church. Why? Because we can do what God has called us to do and recognize that there will always be more that we need God to intervene on. In other words, we cannot create utopia and it's not ours to do. We cannot create the kingdom. It has to be inaugurated by Jesus Himself. And this is profoundly good news because it frees us as individuals and as a church to discern what our particular job is. We can live to learn with uh, learn to live within the limits of our particular giftings and callings in this particular time and place. Which means as a church, we won't do everything. Which means you as an individual need not do everything. It means we can and must say no to good and godly things. Not just say no to the bad things. We cannot and need not do it all. What we say yes and no to become matters now of discerning what the Spirit is asking. It becomes a matter of asking God, what do I say yes and no to? Rather than trying to do every good thing out of compulsion and guilt. Or, a, often below the surface, messiah complex, that I've got to fix everything and save everyone. Now, if you're a person who is pulled towards perfection, these words will feel like friction. These words will feel very uncomfortable. And there are certain personality types that one of their gifts to the world is seeing what's missing, Right? Their natural tendency is going to want to focus on what still needs to be done. And their prophetic voices are necessary in keeping the church from lethargy, in keeping us from myopic visions of, well, we just got to get done what we can get done here just for our people. They help push us outward. Okay? Those voices are good and necessary. But... They will also do well to take on John the Baptist as a central figure in their lives. He will be helpful for their ministry. Why? Because he will help them constantly remind themselves that they are not the Savior and that he doesn't want or need them to be. So, if that's you this morning, God might be inviting you to come to terms with a drastic truth like John the Baptist did that you will die before everything is fixed. You will die before you see perfection. And because we are not God, this both frees us and forces us to abide in Jesus in places of contemplation and rest. Places that might on the surface seem worthless, They're not getting anything done in a sort of practical way. But because we're not God, it frees us to simply spend time in God's presence. Because he holds all things in his hands, and we do not. It also forces us to spend time in rest, because otherwise we are prone to live as if we are God. This is one of the first sins of Adam and Eve, right? To live as if they are God, as if they're in control, as if they call the shots, as if if they could just be the one ruling things, it'd be a lot more just, a lot more fair, and a lot more enjoyable. And this is one of the reasons that Israel was commanded, called to Sabbath, to rest and refrain from work on the seventh day of the week because it was an embodied reminder that the world will keep spinning even if they stop working. Do you see the gift of inadequacy? Advent and John the Baptist invite us to come to terms with our insufficiency to transform the world on our own. Instead, they invite us to hold tightly to the promise that Christ is coming again to redeem and restore all things and that we can participate imperfectly in that work even now. As we close, just try and imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth and their son John who had spent their entire lives and the lives of their grandparents and their great-grandparents only knowing Israel as oppressed and colonized under Roman power and seemingly without a prophet from God. I mean, talk about a temptation towards hopelessness. But it's into that story that a Savior is born. And they... Even John doesn't get to fully see it. Zechariah and Elizabeth John, they don't get to fully see it. And Esau McCulley, he says, "These stories challenge our myopic perception of what God is doing in the world as judged by the progress that we make in our lifetime." John the Baptist is beheaded by a wicked ruler. He never saw the resurrection. He never really got to see if this Jesus that he was preaching like was really, really, really the Messiah. So was John a fool? Was his life wasted? Absolutely not. Even though he didn't see it, the resurrection vindicates his life and retells his story in a whole new light, the light of Christ. The redemption of the cross washes backwards and fills John's life with profound meaning and purpose. So much so that I'm standing up here 2,000 years ago speaking much longer than my son wants me to about John the Baptist. Because of the resurrection... The same can be said for our lives. And I encourage God to plant that seed of hope in you that even if I don't see it, none of this, nothing done for God is done in vain. We need John because there needs to be a certain kind of absence within us, a certain emptiness and open space that can then be filled with Emmanuel, with Jesus Christ, the God, with us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.